Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. A New Hampshire woman gets a call from her nephew. He tells her he can't buy high-capacity magazines for an AR-15-style rifle in Connecticut. He said, so I was wondering if I could use your address to have these high-capacity magazines sent to your house. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. How an aunt raised a red flag on a member of the family. And a recent survey reveals how wrong Americans are about the leading cause of gun deaths in the country. Most Americans thought murders other than mass shootings were the leading cause of gun deaths. In the 1970s, a bunch of people in Lyme, Connecticut, started having unexplained symptoms. The story of how one woman's persistence with the health department and doctors led to the identification of Lyme disease. I remember that little girl feeling of like, my mom is being a pain in the butt here. Like, she's... She's too serious. Plus how teams and fans are adjusting to eight-person football at some main high schools. It's Next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks for joining us. Over the past few years, a number of high-profile retailers have waded into the gun control debate. This fall, Walmart said it would stop selling ammunition for military-style rifles. The company has also stopped selling all handguns. Dick's Sporting Goods stopped selling military-style rifles and high-capacity magazines in 2018. In a recent interview with Marketplace, the company's CEO, Ed Stack, said the mass shooting in Parkland, Florida, was the final push toward that decision. Enough is enough. You know, we, the system is broken. And uh, at that point, we said... We need to stand up and say something. We've got an expertise here. We know what's going on. And we, have to try to, we have to try to solve this problem. Stack says the move cost his company about a quarter of a billion dollars in sales, but they have no regrets. One of the oldest U.S. gun makers, Colt Manufacturing, based in Connecticut, made a similar move in September. The company announced it would stop producing AR-15s for the civilian market. But in a statement, they didn't mention gun control. Instead, they explained the decision by saying, quote, we believe there is adequate supply for modern sporting rifles for the foreseeable future. John Dankosky spoke with Robert Spitzer. He's a professor of political science at SUNY Cortland in New York. Spitzer is the author of five books on gun policy, and he joined us by Skype to talk about Colt's decision and the gun manufacturing industry. Well, first of all, let's talk about that statement that Colt released. They say they're responding to an oversaturated market for AR-15s. Do you see it that way? I think their observation is correct. I think it is a market that has been well saturated. There are many, many companies that produce AR-style assault-type weapons. Colt, I think, tends to be viewed as a more high-end product that is priced a little higher. It's become very competitive, and this has also occurred at a time where gun sales generally have been flat, even declining a little bit. That has especially been true in the last couple of years. While uh, Donald Trump has been president, ironically, one of the reasons that uh, we see gun sales rise or fall is often because of political cycles, not just consumer demand. And when 
You have a friendly president in the White House when it comes to gun policy. That is President Trump. There's less political pressure to go out and buy guns to make a political statement. So that's kind of the backdrop for the current circumstance where Colt has decided to stop uh, selling uh, AR-type weapons to the civilian market. For the civilian market, you say, but they're still going to be making AR-15-style weapons for the police and for military to fulfill those contracts, correct? Uh, yes, that is right. Given this marketplace currently, how has Colt been doing over the course of the last decade or so? Well, the gun industry generally, I think, has been not doing particularly well, partly for a number of reasons. Um, while you do see spurts in gun sales at times, there has been no dramatic increase sustained over a period of time of gun sales. Firearms are a very durable commodity. They, they, they can last for decades with the very minimal degree of care. And frankly, fewer Americans are interested in buying guns, owning guns, having guns. Many of the gun sales that do occur are people who already have guns who are buying more to add to their collections. We know that the average number of guns owned by the typical gun owner has increased dramatically in the last few decades. So there just isn't a huge market out there, and you certainly have plenty of companies vying for the existing market. Colt has not run afoul of business problems like, for example, the Remington Company, which is another very old and storied company where Remington filed for, I believe, Chapter 11 bankruptcy last year because they have been suffering. So Colt seems to be doing okay. I haven't seen, you know, final detailed business information about them, but compared to some other gun manufacturers, they seem to be holding their own. I want to get back to that statement where they they talk about the adequate supply for modern sporting rifles and and parse that a little bit if if possible we're we're seeing an awful lot of gun makers that are catching blowback from the large number of mass shootings that have happened with AR15 style weapons there's been a a large scale movement uh, started by Parkland high school students and that are trying to limit the sale of weapons like that. Is Colt's decision at this point actually a decision about just not wanting to associate themselves with AR-15-style rifles more than it is a a market-based decision? There is an important political subtext to AR-15-type weapons, similar types of weapons, which is indeed that they have increasingly been used by mass shooters, that uh, a growing number of studies show that when you use that type of weapon in a mass shooting, more people will be injured and more people will die than if you use other sorts of weapons. And the number of mass shootings that include the use of assault weapons has been increasing, especially in the last 10 years. So there is a real stigma that has been attached to these weapons. And even though Colt made no mention of this cloud that hangs over assault weapons, the fact is they must be aware, fully aware, that that is part of what is involved in selling these weapons. So one can't help but come to the conclusion that this political subtext is probably at least one reason why they decided to curtail sales to the civilian market. There is, however, something that's more tangible hanging over the gun industry. Uh, There was a lawsuit filed by families of the Sandy Hook shooting victims against Remington. Uh, That suit went after the company for how it marketed its Bushmaster AR-15 model, which was used in that shooting. I'm wondering if Colt and other gun manufacturers are reacting to a lawsuit like that, thinking that the way that we've sold these weapons in the past may well come back 
to us in lawsuits from the public? We have seen a more aggressive litigation approach being taken towards some gun manufacturers. And even if these lawsuits do not prevail, if they are allowed to go to trial, it does provide the uh, those bringing the suit to engage in discovery, that is to obtain documents, emails, internal messages, etc., from these companies, which could result in the revelation of information that could be at the least highly embarrassing to some of the gun companies. And of course, litigation can be a black eye, even if you prevail in the end, it's expensive, it's time consuming. And that by itself may be a bit of a further consideration about why a company might, like Colt might decide that uh, manufacturing and selling assault weapons to a civilian market is too much trouble, and why not just bypass that and focus on other things? That was John Dankosky talking with Robert Spitzer, a political science professor at SUNY Cortland in New York. Three New England states, Massachusetts, Vermont, and Connecticut, generally ban the purchase of high-capacity magazines for weapons. After a Connecticut man was found in illegal possession of magazines earlier this year, he was arrested and charged with a felony. It happened when the FBI got a tip and police in the city of Norwalk, Connecticut, used the state's red flag law as part of their investigation. The law allows them to seize firearms from someone deemed a risk to themselves or others. Connecticut Public Radio's Ryan Lindsay has the story of the New Hampshire woman who made the difficult decision to report a family member she thought posed a risk. Melissa Potter told police she had a story to tell. Her nephew had called out of the blue to ask a favor. When the phone call came in, I was in the kitchen. And whenever the phone rings, you know, you look at the caller ID. And I saw Brandon's name on it, which surprised me because he has never called me before. Brandon Wagshaw told her he was building an AR-15 style rifle and needed her help because he was running into a little bit of a problem. He wanted to buy magazines that could hold 30 rounds. But in 2013, selling and purchasing magazines with more than 10 rounds became illegal in Connecticut, where he lives. Potter lives in New Hampshire. He said, so I was wondering if I could use your address to have these high-capacity magazines sent to your house. So Potter stayed on the phone, trying to change her nephew's mind about buying the magazines. Then the call cut off, leaving her standing at her kitchen counter, shaken. I was thinking about, you know, the mass shootings that have that have taken place where you see it on the news and you read the stories that they have these high capacity magazines and when they intend to kill a lot of people they come in with a lot of ammunition ready to kill. A few days later Melissa called the police in Norwalk, Connecticut in her town in New Hampshire. Her wife Leanne Potter submitted an online tip to the FBI then called to make sure it had been received. This was not one of those things to be taken lightly and it just You know, you don't want to have the death of a lot of people in this kind of a situation on your hands. The FBI followed up with Melissa. A few days later, the couple sat down for dinner. Leanne looked up and saw Wagshaw on TV. It was a mugshot. Generally, people who are into it that far are getting ready to do something. Nobody who's going out and doing target practice or hunting wears a bulletproof vest. Using information the Potters told the FBI, Norwalk police investigated Wagshaw. They say their records revealed more than a decade of incidents, and police allege he once told a classmate that he could make the Virginia Tech mass shooting look like nothing. 
Police say the combination of Wagshaw's desire to buy high-capacity magazines and his history of threats represented a, quote, clear and looming danger. And they suspected he had access to guns, so they filed what's known as a risk warrant. This is an element of Connecticut's red flag law, which allows police to confiscate someone's guns if they're judged to be a risk to themselves or others. While searching Wagshaw's car, they say they found illegal high-capacity magazines. That led to his arrest. Lieutenant Terry Blake with the Norwalk Police Department was there that day. Obviously, Wagshaw did not commit that crime. Um, There's no telling if he would or would not have committed that crime. Uh, Only he knows that. But ultimately, you know, that information that was gleaned from this um, was alarming. Wagshaw was charged with four counts of illegal purchase of a high-capacity magazine. His lawyer says he plans to plead not guilty. And authorities have yet to charge him with anything related to violence. Police say the Potter's calls led to a successful investigation. And Melissa says she's relieved that her nephew was arrested. But it wasn't an easy thing to do. There's also a feeling of shame that's associated with it, that how could this happen to a member of my own family that could have possibly even thought about killing innocent people. It is a shameful thing, and I have not shared this with very many of my friends. Melissa says she shared her story with police because she didn't want to witness another mass shooting that she could have done something to stop. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Ryan Lindsay. Wagshall is expected in court in early December and intends to plead not guilty. Ryan Lindsay is part of a reporting collaborative called Guns in America, which recently surveyed people about gun deaths and storing firearms. The reporting collaborative partnered with APM Research Lab and Call to Mind for the poll. John Dankosky spoke with Lisa Dunn, a research editor for Guns in America. Let's talk about some of what you found. What did Americans think was the leading cause of gun deaths? So it turns out that Americans thought uh, that most Americans thought murders other than mass shootings were the leading cause of gun deaths. And that was about 33% of the folks that we surveyed. And the second largest category was actually mass shootings. So about 25% of Americans that we surveyed thought mass shootings were the leading uh, source of gun deaths in the U.S. And only 25% guessed correctly that it's actually suicides that are the leading category of gun deaths in the U.S., and and they account for about 60% of all gun deaths annually, uh, which averages to about 19,000. So it turns out that only a quarter of the Americans that we surveyed actually knew what the leading cause of gun deaths is in the U.S. Why do you think that there's that inaccurate perception amongst the American population? Yeah, I think it has to do with um, certainly media coverage. Uh, as you know, there's a lot of attention paid to mass shootings. So I guess it's sort of not surprising that um, a lot of Americans think that that maybe that's the the kind of uh, largest source of gun deaths. And, you know, murders themselves, they also get as well uh, media attention. So I, I don't think it's totally surprising. Um, suicides tend not to get as much coverage. Uh, for various reasons, and uh, so it's it's sort of the findings weren't weren't entirely surprising to us. For comparison's sake, you, you say about nineteen thousand deaths by suicide a, a year in the U.S. Uh, what is the real number of deaths by mass shootings as as you've defined that term? 
Right. So, um, and I'm glad you said as you defined it, because as you may know, there's really no agreed upon definition for mass shootings. Various definitions exist, um, you know, according to the FBI and the Gun Violence Archive. But if you if you look at sort of a broad definition, and, and that's what we went with in this case, it, it's about in the area of 380 per year. So it, it amounts to about less than 2% of all the gun deaths that happen in the U.S. So it's it's a, it's a tiny fraction. So, so let's turn to the questions about storing firearms with a, with a lock. What were some of the survey results there and what questions were you asking folks? Right. So we asked people um, if they have a gun, uh, what do they do with it when they're not using it? Um, so we were interested to find out do you store your gun with a lock in place? And what we found was that about 60% of um, uh, gun owners that we surveyed said that they always stored their gun. Um, and about 19% actually said they never stored the gun with a lock in place. And then we also asked, would you support mandating that guns be stored with locks? And what we found was broad support for that kind of mandate, 78%, basically 8 in 10 of the Americans we surveyed, supported that guns should be stored with a lock in place, and only about 18% opposed that. Now, this had broad support across all demographic groups. Seven in 10 Republicans supported a locked gun mandate. Um, 66% of gun owners also supported mandated locked gun storage. A little bit more support from women than men, um, and a little bit more support in metropolitan areas than in more um, suburban or rural areas. Were you surprised at that broad support? I actually, yeah, I actually was surprised. Um, you know, as part of this survey, we also asked about red flag laws. And so that generated the same level of support as for gun storage. So it seemed like these two kinds of laws uh, definitely got support across the board, Republicans and Democrats um, and gun owners and non-gun owners alike. Describe, if you would, how you asked the question about red flag laws, because like other things having to do with guns and gun ownership, there are different ways in which people could perceive that question. Right. So what we asked is whether they supported allowing two different types of situations, allowing either a family member or police to seek a court order to temporarily take away guns if they feel a gun owner may harm themselves or others. So it was sort of a, a two-choice question. And what we found is that there was really strong support for the idea of a family member member initiating um, a red flag law or what's known as an extreme risk protection order. That was at the level of 77% of the Americans we surveyed. A slightly lower number, around 70%, supported red flag laws that would, would be initiated by law enforcement. I should ask you about some of the demographic splits in the surveys that you put out there. You've already alluded to this, and we've read for years that there are Big differences in how people perceive gun issues depending on their age, potentially their race, the part of the country where they live. Could you talk a bit more about about who you ask these questions of? 
Right. So our survey definitely includes folks from all geographic areas. It's definitely representative of the entire country. And you're right. We did find some differences. Um, but I would say that the differences are minor. So our listeners here in New England can take these results and say, yeah, this pretty much represents us, too. Yeah, I think they can. I mean, I think we did find uh, when it comes to red flag laws and safe storage laws, uh, we did find slightly higher support uh, in the region that we termed the Northeast. So that would include your listeners uh, in the New England region. And so there is slightly higher support in those regions. But again, it's not statistically so much higher that your listeners would feel that somehow they're in some kind of a minority. Lisa Dunn is research editor for Guns in America. Lisa, thanks so much for being with us here on the program. I appreciate it. Sure. Thanks for having me. Coming up, Lyme disease was first identified in New England a half century ago. A podcast digs into the history, science, and controversial treatment of the disease. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters, who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Lyme disease is carried by black-legged ticks, also called deer ticks. It was identified in Lyme, Connecticut in the 1970s. According to federal health officials, it affects about 300,000 people a year nationwide. And although it's spread down the eastern seaboard and is found in the Midwest, Lyme's highest concentrations are in New England. A podcast, Patient Zero, from New Hampshire Public Radio, explores this enigmatic disease from its discovery to the controversy surrounding its treatment. We're going to listen to part of the first episode of the series. Here's producer and host Taylor Quimby. I'm standing here in Lyme, Connecticut at the top of Joshua Town Road, where Polly Murray, who was, for our purposes, the patient zero of Lyme disease, lived until just a few years ago, private, shy, and surrounded by forest. For a time, Polly was celebrated as a sort of canary in the coal mine, a woman who fought the inertia of status quo medicine and sounded the alarm about Lyme disease. As the years pass, I can see that her story is being forgotten. In a lot of online articles and retellings, she's simply described as a concerned mother. But to those who know her story, it's fair to say that concerned would be an understatement. Polly was tenacious. She's a very serious person. Boom, the minute she's up, she is highly industrious. Kind of a perfectionist, and I think that rubbed off on all of us, too. And these are all good qualities, and yet she couldn't relax. Joshua Town Road is where Polly and her ex-husband Gil raised four children. They've scattered now, but I was able to speak with three of them. Alex, nicknamed Sandy, high school soccer star and eldest of the four. Sandy is a proper nickname for Alexander. Todd, the baby, and today the most soft-spoken of the Murray family. He had a bad temper um, as a kid, as did I. And finally, Wendy. I, by the way, was named Wendy after Peter Pan, and the dog was Nanny. It was the early 70s. Lyme, Connecticut was a small-town New England paradise, a mix of farms and barns and upper-crust homes. 
And back then, Polly especially looked like a member of Connecticut nobility. She wore, like, silver jewelry and that beautiful white hair. Um, and it looked fabulous. She was an artist, trained at Yale, as straightforward and deliberate as the subjects she captured. Still life paintings, portraits, landscapes. Sometimes, when her kids were playing, she would shout, Freeze! And then she would sketch them where they stood. But outside the bounds of her meticulously gardened backyard, the children were anything but still. We happened to live like a mile from the Connecticut River. Across a brook and through a, a patch of cedar trees with moss. Brother would skin his knuckles. One time I got a bad you know, cut on my rear end. We could actually play cowboys and Indians with, with real cows. So it was just... A wonderful childhood of, of playing outdoors. You know, there was only so much trouble you could get in playing out in the woods. Do you remember becoming aware of the fact that your family had health issues that were sort of above and beyond what might seem normal? The normal part is what... Um, at the time, was beyond my comprehension. As early as 1964, Polly Murray was chronicling her family's health. Because she's such a, you know, organized, tenacious personality, she would write everything down. So I just remember, you know, being on the phone, chatting with friends, and I'd look down at the calendar and see, you know, these detailed notes of doctor's appointments and symptoms and stuff. Rashes and colds, itchy eyes, sore throats, diarrhea. Every symptom, no matter how commonplace, and every doctor's visit, no matter how perfunctory, wound up on Polly's calendar. That's how I know that on May 20th of 1964, baby Todd was prescribed penicillin for an ear infection. That's how I know that a few days later, he stopped eating and was hospitalized for dehydration, and that the whole family was hit with a gastrointestinal bug not too much later. But most of the time, Polly was documenting her own health problems. You know, she had joint aches and muscle aches. Bruising easily. Pinpick rashes. Sun sensitivity. Kind of arthritis in her fingers. Trouble sleeping. You know, the word coping was, you know, used as frequently as the or and, it seemed. Like, my mom was so beset by so much. Polly was convinced that her various symptoms, which came and went on an almost daily basis, were part of some larger pattern that they were all connected somehow. I mean, she was a layperson, but she had a good aptitude for science. Before art school, she had spent a summer in Copenhagen, working as an assistant for the World Health Organization's tuberculosis research office. She wasn't a medical professional, but she was medically minded, driven to read research journals and medical literature. But for doctors who are used to being the authority in the examination room, that aptitude can come off as meddling. Reading the dynamic between my mom and Dr. Irving and... He was so personable and um, respectful. But at the same time, I remember that little girl feeling of, like, my mom is being a pain in the butt here. Like, she's she's too serious. She's, she's asking too many questions. Um, and so kind of being embarrassed by it. Over several years, she saw a grab bag of experts who examined her for lupus, they tested her for psoriasis and for rheumatoid arthritis, thyroid problems, and hypoglycemia. Some doctors were supportive. Some were dismissive. But nobody had any answers. She literally had doctors saying, oh, just go play tennis. Um, You're just bored or you're depressed because you're just a housewife. I mean, and she didn't make this stuff up. One doctor told her her symptoms were psychosomatic and that she needed a psychotherapist. So, Polly saw one, 
and the psychotherapist told her she was depressed because she had a chronic illness that nobody could identify. You know, there's a something that happens to the personality, too, when you're chronically ill and not getting the, the support from the medical community. Um, you know, it changes your whole demeanor. Um, and it was just very striking. It really brought back memories of, of my mom kind of embattled. If things had ended here, Polly Murray may have been forever labeled as an overly anxious, neurotic warrior, as the H-word, a hypochondriac. And despite her convictions, she would later write that she had her doubts. Maybe she was crazy. But then, in the mid-1970s, new symptoms appeared, ones that couldn't be easily dismissed as a figment of her imagination, because she was not the one experiencing them. You know, the first thing I remember was... It was the night of my high, my eighth grade graduation. And as I said, it was kind of like, you know, long white dresses and the boys were in suits and just very charming. But it was a big deal, graduation. And um, Todd that day um, got an excruciating headache. I mean, like out of the blue. We were in the sunshine having a, you know, sitting on the grass having class. And I noticed this bullseye rash up here. We went to the doctor who didn't really know what it was. I think he described it as erythema circonatum, which just means red ring. A couple days later, or maybe a week later, I got severe muscle aches and fever and developed severe crushing, throbbing headaches. I developed a swollen knee. um, And I remember about that time, Alex also had swollen knees. I all of a sudden developed uh, very bad water on the knee. We were at a river swimming, my, my dad and I, and he turned around and he had a giant bullseye rash on his upper back. That following winter, he also developed swollen knees. The, the primary treatment was to drain the fluid out of the knee. He went to a doctor and uh, was told it was a spider bite. Four out of the six members of the Murray family had symptoms. Only Wendy and their other son, David, seemed to be fine. One of us said, yeah, we're the Wellies. David and I were, you know, escaping most of it. And they were the sickies. You know, and so I remember when that happened, just feeling like, you know, this kid just can't catch a break. So how old were you at this point? I was about 11 or 12, taking up to 16 aspirin a day, which... I remember I actually got toxic from it and had ringing in my ears at one point and had to have the, the dose decrease. Throughout all of it, Polly Murray was doing what she had always done, documenting doctor's visits, scribbling symptoms in journals, squeezing notes onto her calendars. Polly included a lot of this information in a book called The Widening Circle that she wrote years later. I asked her daughter, Wendy, to read some of the entries. Monday, September 8th. Todd had a checkup with the ophthalmologist, and his eyes were all Thursday, September 25th. Sandy's test results were negative, and it was decided that the original test had been contaminated. Saturday, September 13th. We escaped to Watch Hill for a day. The hot sun brought out the rashes. These catalogs are not a pleasant read. 
They're almost obscene in that anonymous way that medical descriptions can be, where we're forced to think explicitly about the human body and to objectify human beings in the context of their frailty. Wednesday, September 24th. Sandy saw the and frankly, the sheer amount of it all is somewhat incredible, as in not credible. They sound like the words of an obsessive hypochondriac. Friday, September 26th. In desperation, I had a sample of the well water tested. But then, Todd got something that had eluded Polly for years. A diagnosis. Tuesday, September 30th. Todd saw Dr. Espenson, who concluded that Todd had juvenile rheumatoid arthritis and should be seen by a rheumatologist. Juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, or JRA. I'm not sure to what extent they know what causes it, but it's um, in a, uh, an autoimmune disease where your, your body uh, attacks the lining of your joints and causes pain and swelling. Did that diagnosis mean anything to you at that point? Well, I, I think I didn't actually believe the diagnosis. Polly was skeptical, too. In between the doctor's visits and trips to the library, Polly had been speaking to neighbors and friends, and she was hearing stories about other kids with swollen joints, fevers, and rashes. There was Frank Roche's daughter, who lived just one street away from Joshua Town Road. The first time it was swelling of the knees, the size of soccer balls, and, and they treated her for, for a while for rheumatoid, juvenile rheumatoid arthritis because they didn't know what they were doing. And then in Old Lyme, just a few miles south, there was a little girl in a wheelchair. Same diagnosis, juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. A high school soccer player, JRA. Captain Richard Wright's daughter, Christian, in East Haddam, JRA. His neighbor's child, JRA. There were several kids, I don't know how many exactly, on the local school bus for the elementary school, and they all came down with mysterious illnesses of some swelling and rashes. JRA affects about 1 in 10,000 children. Two cases in the town of Lyme would have been unusual, and Polly was seeing three or four on the same street. On October 6, 1975, Polly wrote a letter to her family doctor. And in a patrician manner that almost masks her frustration, she asks, doesn't it seem likely that these problems are connected? Polly had always asked a lot of questions, and she came to appointments with ideas that doctors didn't always like. But she generally took what they said seriously. She took what was prescribed. She went to whichever specialist they sent her to. But a week after writing the letter, she had had enough. Something was happening, and nobody was paying it any attention. Here's Wendy again, reading from Polly's book, The Widening Circle. Wednesday, October 15th. Now Todd's other knee was swollen. I had to call the state health department. I couldn't wait any longer. I knew that I was dealing with something that was on the one hand very real in terms of symptoms, but on the other hand didn't exist in the medical literature, and that I would therefore have to be collected and convincing to whoever was on the other end of the phone at the health department. I told Gil that I had a feeling... The call that I was about to make might turn out to be an important one in the long run. And then I went into the study, spread out my notes before me on the desk, and dialed the number.
That's an excerpt from the podcast Patient Zero from New Hampshire Public Radio. The entire series is available wherever you get your podcasts. And when you listen, you'll find out what happened after Polly made that phone call, plus the science behind Lyme disease and controversy over its treatment. There's a bill up for consideration in Congress right now that could help health officials better understand tick-borne illnesses. The bipartisan bill was introduced by Republican Senator Susan Collins of Maine and a Democratic senator from Minnesota. When Collins introduced the bill earlier this year, she said Lyme disease has become a major public health concern. When HIV became a public health crisis, fortunately a gold standard for identification and treatment was developed within 10 years. Lyme disease, by contrast, was identified more than 40 years ago, yet there still is no gold standard treatment and existing prevention, education, and diagnostic efforts have proven to be inadequate. The Tick Act would improve research, testing, and treatment of Lyme disease and other tick-borne illnesses and approve millions of dollars in funding to help do so. The bill passed through committee earlier this month, and it will be considered by the full Senate, though a date has not yet been scheduled. Coming up, the resurgence of a wild cat. Plus, shrinking school populations mean a new kind of football for high schoolers. I'm Morgan Springer. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. An elusive wildcat is making a comeback across New England. As Connecticut Public Radio's Patrick Scahill reports, bobcats are returning to the region following decades of conservation and forest regrowth. And now that the wildcats are bouncing back, biologists are trying to learn more about where bobcats are and what they're doing. I'm at a lab in northwest Connecticut, standing next to a bobcat. Its bright eyes and black tufted ears are separated from me only by the metal grill of a large carrier. She's sleepy, but waking up. So that's just her way of telling us to back away. That morning, Jason Hawley, a wildlife biologist with the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection, got a phone call. It was from a coyote trapper who'd accidentally caught this bobcat. Lately, Hawley's been putting out the word to trappers. If you catch a bobcat, don't release it. Instead, call his team. So we sent two people over to Lebanon. They drugged the cat, tranquilized it, put it in our carrier that we use. They're basically like a kennel. They stay pretty calm in there. Holly's with the Connecticut Bobcat Project, a study entering its second year with the goal of tracking bobcats all over the state. These wild cats are about two to three times the size of your average house cat. They're elusive and quick, and as sightings go up, Holly says lots of people confuse them with mountain lions. In addition to its tufted ears, one of this cat's defining features is its short bobbed tail. 
Holly's project seeks to learn more about the hidden lives of these cats, examining diet, fertility, and how bobcats act in the wild, and more and more in our backyard. Our bobcats in more urban areas using different habitat or different resources, and are they using it differently? Are they using it at different times of the day? Are they moving at different times? Today's bobcat is starting to wake up from its transport slumber. So before biologists can work on it, it needs to be redrugged. Holly and his two assistants administer a sedative through a long syringe pole. Good. After about 15 minutes, the cat is under. She out? Pretty darn good. Holly pulls the bobcat out of the carrier and places it on a long metal table. Scientists remove a few bloated ticks and a small molar to get the cat's age. The head and neck are measured, there's a DNA sample, and the cat is ear-tagged and fitted with a GPS collar. You know, most people think of bobcats as, like, you know, needing woods and living out in the middle of nowhere, but, I mean, we're finding they're very adaptable animals. So far, the project has collared more than 80 cats tracking bobcats through rural forests, and even one in Connecticut's biggest city. It's pretty amazing. I mean, he'll, he'll go right into almost downtown Bridgeport and use some of the parkland that they have in there. Regionally, sightings are also on the rise. Vermont wildlife officials say bobcat populations are healthy and well-distributed, and numbers are also up in Maine, increasing alongside the bobcat's bigger cousin, the Canada lynx. Back in Connecticut, Holly says bobcats, which in the mid-20th century were subject to a bounty, can now be seen in all towns. He says location data they're getting from those GPS collars is helping to pinpoint den sites, letting field biologists examine bobcat kittens in the wild, creatures that otherwise would be nearly impossible to find. And all that GPS data also provides something else, insight into bobcat personalities, like another cat he tagged in southern Connecticut. His home range was just sort of this vertical strip along the Connecticut River, and he would actually go out to islands in the river, like swimming out in the islands. Most people, you know, think cats don't want to swim. So they're, yeah, they're very interesting animals, and they definitely have personalities. As for the cat I met, it was released the next day, right back where that coyote trapper accidentally picked it up. Holly says she'll probably have her first litter this spring. So if all goes well with her collar, it's possible biologists will see this cat again this time with kittens. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Patrick Scahill in Hartford. Patrick has some great photos of his bobcat encounter. Go to nextnewengland.org. This is Next from the New England News Collaborative. I'm Morgan Springer. One of the recurring themes of our coverage of New England over these last few years has been the aging of our population and the shrinking of many communities. Schools have closed or been consolidated in some places that just don't have enough students. It's also changing the landscape of scholastic sports, at least in Maine. Over the past decade, participation in high school football has fallen by close to 20 percent in the state. Steve Craig is a sports writer for the Portland Press-Herald, and he says on top of shrinking school enrollment, football is taking a hit because kids are specializing in other sports year-round. Certainly you cannot discount the concern over concussions specifically and injuries in general. And then you get the scares with the chronic, I'll just call it CTE because I can't pronounce its long name, but 
the brain injury that's shown up in many dead NFL players. It's scary. So that's been affecting football. This year, he says 10 schools have changed up the game, reducing the number of players on the field from 11 to 8. The biggest difference is with three fewer players on offense, they'll take away two linemen. So they'll only be those three kids down kind of with their hands in the dirt instead of the normal five. Also, one skill position player is removed. That could be a running back or a wide receiver, and and it'll all depend on what play is called. Defensively, it also three fewer guys, so it's in very simple terms. It's usually one less lineman, one less linebacker, one less defensive back. But again, it's based on how the coaches choose to play it. Craig says they've also shrunk the field. It's still 100 yards long, but it's skinnier by 40 feet. We talked to Craig at the start of the football season. By now, those main schools have two months of eight-person football under their belt. Maine Public Radio's Robbie Feinberg has been following one of these schools. Under the Friday night lights of the football field near Ellsworth High School, junior Taylor Clark and sophomore Jocelyn Jordan have turned out with what seems like a good portion of the student body. Everyone comes out to this. This is a big crowd, please, yeah. sir. Football games are the biggest events, pretty much. The crowd erupts in cheers as the team of about 15 players dashes onto the field clad in maroon. Ellsworth's high school football program is only about a decade old, but Jordan says it's become a big draw for the community. Oh, everybody. Everybody, people who don't even have kids will come to watch the games. But on the field this year, things look a little different. Instead of 11 on each side, there are just eight. Ellsworth is one of 10 schools in the state that have moved to a new eight-man football league because of declining school enrollment and waning participation in the sport. In some of our activities, we have seen a dramatic decrease. And football would be one of those where we've seen the numbers decline over the years. Mike Burnham, executive director of the Interscholastic Division of the Maine Principals Association, also cites growing concerns over injuries and the long-term risks of concussions. Some smaller schools, says Burnham, have only been able to recruit a few dozen students to their football programs. Some have been forced to keep players on the field nearly the whole game or to look at playing underclassmen who may not be ready, potentially putting them at risk of injury. And we saw some schools that were facing a a crisis on whether or not they were going to be able to sponsor 11-man football. So that kind of led us to where we're at with the 8-man football. Ellsworth High School Athletic Administrator Josh Frost says with just 15 players turning out for football this year, joining the new league was the best option, at least for the next few years. It would have been eight-man football or play JV football or not have any football. And it would just seem a lot easier to make the decision to play eight-man and bring the sidelines in and shrink the field a little bit and play that. Ellsworth parent Jessica Brown says a number of community members had worked for more than a decade to build up the program here. They raised money, launched a youth program, and eventually a high school team. The school even added a homecoming game and dance each fall. So Brown says the transition to eight-player football has helped preserve an important local tradition. And it was it was really it was really heartbreaking to think we'd worked this hard and watched this program develop and what it's done for these kids. And it really, I feel like, kind of built my son. Like it, there was something so bonding about it. Like his best friends are still 
his football player friends. There's just something you can't replace. So far, students and coaches say the transition has been relatively smooth. The biggest difficulty, many say, has been the long drives to schools in Topsum and Yarmouth. Junior player Noah Hughes says initially he didn't like the idea of having to play a new kind of football on a skinnier field. But he says he now thinks it's more demanding, in a good way. Now that I'm in 8-man, I honestly like it better than 11-man. It is faster, more aggressive, it takes more more of you it, when you complete something it's more of a personal respect and it's it's just in my opinion way more fun it's more fat it's faster it's it's better in my opinion just this year two other programs in maine have been forced to cancel their varsity seasons due to a lack of players jessica mcgreevy is the athletic director for one of them dixfield's dirigo high school she says the school in town are considering future options including eight-man football or a co-op team eight-man football is a, is a different game um it, we have other schools out there playing eight-man football with fewer kids and, and doing it successfully so we, we're really going to have to take a deep look at you know, what we want to do as a community and where we want to go from here. But sitting along the 40-yard line, parent Jessica Brown says for her and other members of the Ellsworth community, this year's new eight-man football team is a source of pride. Watching the first game here this year, looking around, I, I started to feel hopeful again. Like, I mean, our kids don't know anything else. Like, this is their Friday nights, and I would hate for that tradition to be gone. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Robbie Feinberg. Eight-person football hasn't really caught on in other New England states, at least not yet. Vermont used to have a league, and there have been calls to revive it. One columnist in the state's capital wrote an article last year titled, Eight Man is Not a Dirty Word. But the game is going strong in other U.S. states like Nebraska, Kansas, and California. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer. Our digital producer is Carlos Mejia. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. Music this week is by Todd Merrill and Goodnight Blue Moon. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WSHU, and the Public's Radio.